Um, as you probably know, I'm, I'm somebody that likes to read. I enjoy reading. I read widely. I read a lot of different books. I like uh, reading fantasy stuff. C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy is one of my favorite. I love reading fiction, all kinds of stuff. Um, and uh, I remember one time I came home and I was reading a book, and uh, it was by Mortimer Adler, and it's called How to Read a Book. And so I sat down on the couch, and I opened How to Read a Book, and I started reading it. And Heather looked over, and she said to me, are you really reading a book called How to Read a Book? And I was like, yeah. And it's one of those ironic things. You know what I'm saying? It's like, wait, don't you have to know how to read a book in order to read that book so that way you can learn how to read a book? It's just like in this endless vicious cycle. And so I love that because it reminds us of irony. You know, that's one of the, the tools in literature, but it's also something we see in life, situational irony. It's uh, the idea that somebody's doing something, hoping for this particular result, but actually this other paradoxical result is happening and perhaps it's intended or unintended. Let me give you an example just in case you're not tracking with me. Um, let me ask this question. I found this hilarious. I tried to say it with a straight face. I can't. Um, do you know what the most shoplifted book in America is? The Bible. You knew that. How did you know that? <laughs> I'm not accusing you. Which leads me to the next thing. I was watching on the news and there was like this, this uh, I don't know if it was a march or a protest or something was going on. And one of the signs was held up and, and the sign read, no joke, I wrote it down because I couldn't believe my eyes. It said this, we condemn judgmentalism. <laughs> and I just, man, I, I was like, are you serious? Like there's, there's educated people in the world that actually write signs like this? And, and you get it right, right? Because it's, it's wrong you know, to be judgmental. And it's like, aren't you being judgmental about being judgmental? Yeah, but that doesn't matter. I'm right. You know, it's just, it's hilarious. There's some other ones. This is a good one. In Christian circles, I've seen these ones. Um, and I've been told this. It's wrong to say someone's beliefs are wrong. And that was one of my favorites. I was like, so are you saying I'm wrong? Yeah. But I thought you said it's wrong to say someone's wrong. Well, no, not now, but like, <laughs> Okay. Another one, I, I love this one on a church's website. We have no creed. And you know what a creed is. Creed is a statement of belief. We have no creed but Christ. Sounds great, except for that sentence in and of itself is a creed. So that's ironic. Or, or this one, theology isn't important because God can't be put in a box. Which is ironic because that sentence is a theological sentence. And so anyways, these kinds of things just crack me up. I guess some of them are funny to you. <laughs> you can pray about a new personality. But um, so when we get to Galatians 4, what ends up happening is Paul is progressing his argument with the church in Galatia. And what he's going to do is he's going to expose the situational irony that is happening in the church. And what he's going to show is that these troublemakers that we saw all the way from Galatians chapter 1, these troublemakers are telling the church that if you truly want to be free, you have to come under the law. And Paul is going to show the irony of that, which is this. Through your pursuit of freedom, what is actually happening is you are becoming enslaved. And so you want to be free, but that's not the way to be free. That's the way to be slaved if, enslaved if you want to come under the law. And so he's going to show them how the law is enslaving but ironically, what he's going to do to prove it is he's going to use the law. Now, when you do that, that is significant. When you use the law to prove that the law proves your point, 
Now you have nowhere to run except for one, reject everything or bend the knee to Jesus. That's it. And so that's what he's going to do. So let's look at this in Galatians chapter 4, the Bible that I know you brought with you. Chapter 4, verse 21, that's where I want to encourage you to open. And if you have it on an electronic device, go ahead and snap that baby on. Probably put it on airplane mode because you don't want to be getting texts and alerts. Right? Verse 21, Paul writes, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who, do not, who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as, that, just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But, when, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers... We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What Paul is going to do, he lets, he lets it be known right in verse 21, the very first thing. Paul is going to ask the church who desires to come under the law if they have actually spent any time reading or listening to the law. He says in verse 21, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to it? Do you not listen to the law? In other words, Paul's saying, wait a minute, so you guys want to come under the law? And they're like, yeah, we're thinking about it. He's going, dude, have you even read it? Like, do you even know what you're getting into? And that's Paul's way of saying, well, let me help you. Let me help you read it. Let me help you make an educated decision about this thing and what he's going to do he's going to give them a little lesson about the law from the law and how he's going to do it to begin with is to return to Abraham someone that he was talking about in Galatians chapter 3 you see since the troublemakers that is Jewish Christians have come into the church in Galatia and begin to preach that you have to be circumcised in addition to faith in Jesus these troublemakers are showing that both they and the Jews often put their confidence in their heritage, which can be traced back to Abraham. So Paul's reminding them that Abraham had two sons. Look at this in verse 22. He writes, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. You see, for many Jewish people, their Abrahamic heritage was a hindrance to believing in Jesus. You can read about that in John chapter 8. And so the strength of the argument made by the troublemakers is that if you want to be included in God's family, the only way that can happen is for you to be included first into Abraham's family. 
And the only way to be included into Abraham's family is through circumcision, they taught. So, if you are a Gentile and you want to be in God's family, you have to be circumcised in order to get into Abraham's family and therefore God's family. And the Jews themselves are saying, look, we are Jews by race, by nationality, by ethnicity, by heritage. We also have been circumcised. We're, we're Abraham's family, so we're good to go. But remember, the troublemaker's teaching wasn't to abandon Jesus Christ altogether. Instead, it was simply to add some work called circumcision to their faith in Jesus. And so what they were doing is double, providing like a double confidence. Yes, faith in Jesus, step one. But then you need to also add circumcision. Now you're doubly secure. This is amazing. And then you can have confidence and hope and security and you won't ever fail or stumble. It's the best possible way. But here's what Paul does. Merely to claim Abraham as your father, evidenced by your circumcision, that's not enough. And the reason why is because Abraham had two sons. Paul points out that little fact. Wait a minute. Paul had, I mean, uh, Abraham had two sons. Which means if you're just claiming you're in because you're descended from Abraham, which of Abraham's sons are you descended from? Oh, man. So having shown the Galatians that Abraham had two sons, he's now going to contrast the two sons according to the status of their mothers and according to the manner in which they were born. So the status of their mothers is found in two categories when you read in verse 22. One is a slave woman. That's status number one. The status number two is a free woman. So you can be descended from Abraham according to either the slave woman or the free woman. And not only that, but then the manner of birth, verse 23. The son, he's, he writes, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So one son was born through the flesh. That is, Abraham fathered a son out of selfish and human effort. I don't have time to get into it, but if you want to read it, Genesis chapters 16 through 18 will give you the whole story. And Abraham was promised that he would be the father of many nations, that God would bless the nations through him, and he would have an heir. And that heir would then receive all the inheritance that is Abraham's possessions would be given to him. But Abraham and Sarah getting old, he's looking at her going, and she ain't having no baby, look at her. And she's looking at him going, look at you, old man. And so they take matters into their own hands. Sarah gives Abraham her servant named Hagar. Abraham sleeps with Hagar and conceives a son, and his name is Ishmael. And Ishmael is the product, as the Bible says, of the flesh, which means it's Abraham and Sarah's effort to secure God's blessing through their works rather than simply trusting God's provision. So what ends up happening basically is this. Abraham was functioning along the lines of the principle that God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. In fact, whenever you see that principle at work in the Bible, you can be sure that it won't be God's blessing that follows, but his curse. For God will not be outdone by you. God will fulfill his promises in the manner in which he chooses, and in the timing in which he chooses. And so they were trying to take possession of the blessing rather, rather than waiting to receive it. 
And in fact, later on, as you well know the story, God came through on his promise. Abraham and, and uh, Sarah conceived of a son, and his name was Isaac. And he was born through the manner of promise, the scripture says, which simply means God came through in fulfilling his promise that Sarah and Abraham would have a son. So the descendants of Abraham's sons come in two categories, slave or free. Are you descended from Ishmael, which is the product of human effort and is slavery? Or are you descended from Isaac, the result of faith in God's promise and therefore freedom? So the real question isn't so much, who's your daddy? The question really is this, who's your mama? And depending on the answer to that question depends on whether or not you are slave or free. So who's your mama? That's what Paul's asking. Now remember, their whole argument is like, but yeah, Abraham's our daddy. He had two sons. Who are you descended from, Ishmael or Isaac? And of course they would say, well, Isaac, of course. Hmm. So what Paul's going to do is give the interpretation. He's going to help them understand this text from the law. And he's going to show them why it's significant. Look at this in verse 24a. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. This whole scene may be interpreted in a way which is uh, typological. Now, I know when you see allegory, that's, I don't know if you've read books or whatever, it's like there's, there's a way to interpret the Bible, which is called strict literalism, which is you cannot interpret the Bible in any other way than it has to be strictly literal. There's an earthly literal translation or interpretation, and you can't deviate from that. But this is what Paul's doing. He's doing something allegorical. He's doing something what is called typological, which means like if you read the book of Hebrews or Colossians, you'll see where the apostle Paul or the writer of Hebrews will say the Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament sacrifices, uh, Moses as a prophet, Melchizedek as a priest. You'll see all of these things are types of Christ. In Romans 5, you see Adam is a type of Christ, which means when you read the Old Testament and you read in there about people and places and things, there is at times a meaning which is fuller than the literal rendering. There's a typological rendering or typological interpretation. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying these women, Hagar and Sarah, they can be interpreted typologically or allegorically. And he says this, these women are two covenants. And so what he's going to do is Paul is going to show that these two women and this scripture about uh, Abraham and, his, and Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac, that this whole thing can be interpreted or understood through what's called polarity. Polarity. Polarity is the idea that you have one pole and you have another pole and you contrast the two poles. So not this but this and not that but this. And they're complete contrasts. And so that's called polarity. So we'll read about the first pole in verse 24 and 25. And he says this. Um, now this may be interpreted allegorically, typologically, that these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. And if you make a list of everything he just said there in verse 24 and 25, what you come up with is this. 
There's one pole, which is Old Covenant, Sinai, slavery, Hagar, present Jerusalem, and what's inferred, Ishmael. That's one pole. And now he's going to go to the other pole, which began in verse 24 by saying, these women are two covenants. And so there's uh, the beginning of this, the other pole, but he picks it up in verse 26. But, and there's our contrast word, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So the other pole is new covenant, Jerusalem above, free, Sarah, and what's implied, Isaac. And so if you were to look at the entire book of Galatians, and we'll put this little graphic on the screen, our graphic design uh, guy who's Tyler Adams, he put this together, and it's, I went through and I went through the whole book of Galatians and showed how Paul constantly uses this concept called polarity to show the truth of what he's talking about from uh, Galatians 1 all the way through Galatians 5.1, and we'll continue to see it in, throughout Galatians 5 and 6. But on one side, which is the right side, you see all of the first pole, and that's all the distortions, and that's all the law kind of stuff, the flesh kind of stuff. Everything on the left is the good stuff, the gospel, the faith, um, the spirit, and on and on you go. And so you can see how Paul consistently uses this concept of polarity. He's really putting two things against one another. And so he says, this is how you can interpret this text, is that we're really pitting two things against each other. Now, this isn't the first time we encounter this in the New Testament, nor is it the last time. In fact, one of the texts that has helped me so much is found in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you make a right-hand turn in your Bible and you kind of go a little bit, you'll run into the book of Hebrews chapter 12. And there the writer of Hebrews is going to contrast Mount Sinai and the giving of the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. He's going to contrast that with the New Covenant. And he's gonna, we, we see this in verse 18. The writer writes, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. And you can read about that in Exodus 19. So he's referring to the Old Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant. He says, You have not come to that situation. And then he contrasts it. He introduces the other pole in verse 22. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so what you see is the author is saying there's one mountain where you receive the old covenant, but now there's this new mountain, Mount Zion, where the new covenant is presented. You have not come as Christians. Remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians. You have not come to the old covenant. When you came to Christ, you came to the new covenant. And so there's a contrast. There's a pole. It's polarity. But if you notice in the Hebrews passage and in the Galatians passage, he pits Jerusalem against each other. There's a present Jerusalem where the temple is where there's animal sacrifices and where there's worship according to the law. But then he mentions in verse 26, there's this Jerusalem above. It's not identified by its spatial location, its geography. It's actually identified as being other, perhaps supernatural. It's something totally different and unexpected, and yet is connected in some way. 
What does he mean by that? You see, elsewhere in the New Testament, there are references to a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above. And I want to give you a quick sampling just from the book of Revelation. Revelation 3.12. Here the apostle, or excuse me, the apostle John is recording what Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia. Jesus says to the one who conquers in verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Obviously, Jesus doesn't mean that the people who make up the church in Philadelphia will literally become pillars in a temple. Instead, it's a metaphoric picture symbolizing strength and permanence. You see, wherever the temple of God is mentioned, it means the presence of God. And so those who conquer, those who overcome by faith, they are made pillars in God's temple. In other words, they are a permanent fixture in the presence of God. They cannot be removed. They will be there always. So this new Jerusalem is mentioned there, but then we also see it in Revelation 21, one of my favorite texts to identify the new Jerusalem. What is it? Who are they? The Apostle John writes, And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now watch this description. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. There's that idea of temple and dwelling place. He will dwell with them and they will be, with, be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And then watch this, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels that had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me. And the Apostle John says what the angel said was this, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away to a, in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me what? The, the holy city Jerusalem. Now remember, the angel was going to show him the bride, who is the wife of the Lamb, and the next thing we see is this angel shows John the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So what can we conclude about the Jerusalem that is above, this new Jerusalem, the spiritual Jerusalem? What is it or who is it? And what I can say is simply this. The people to whom Scripture is referring to as the occupants or the citizens of this new Jerusalem, this heavenly Jerusalem, this Jerusalem above, is the bride of Christ the wife of the Lamb. Now, what in the New Testament, the wife of the Lamb or the bride of Christ, what people group does that describe? The church. The church. The people whom God has purchased through the blood of Jesus, who He has redeemed from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group, a people comprised of both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, and so what Paul is doing in Galatians 4 is he's showing the people, Galatians, you have to wake up. You, you have come 
to embrace Jesus who has enacted a new covenant. You have come into the church. You are descended from the Jerusalem which is above. You're free. And so that's how he interprets it. Now what he's going to do is he's going to apply it directly to the Galatians, starting in verse 28. Having interpreted it, interpreted the, the law and helped us understand what's going on there, he now wants to apply it to the situation of the Galatians. And the first thing he's going to do is show that the Galatians are children of Abraham. Not by the flesh like Ishmael, but by faith in the promise of God like Isaac. Look at this in verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. In other words, he wants to remind the Galatians, dude, you guys, you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus. The evidence of that has been the Holy Spirit has come into your life. Galatians 3, 1 through 5. You receive the Spirit not through works of the law, but through faith. And not only that, but when the Spirit came into you, and now the indwelling Spirit that is there in you, it's producing the effects that God promised would be produced, namely obedience and fruits. And that same Spirit which has come in you, it has adopted you, and you're now part of God's family. You are not descended from Ishmael. But you are descended from Isaac. You are children of faith in the promise of God. And if you remember what the promise of God was, the promise was this, Galatians 3.8. It was the promise that God gave first to Abraham that all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. In other words, the promise of God to Abraham was the promise of the gospel. The promise of the coming Christ, the promise of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to scriptures alone. According to that promise, the promise of the gospel, all it takes to become a child of God is trusting that Jesus Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection is enough. It's enough for your forgiveness. It's enough for your justification. Jesus is sufficient. You don't need to add, supplement, or augment anything about Christ for the work that he has accomplished. As he said, it is finished. And so you merely have to embrace the work of God and just trust Christ. That's it. Remember what Paul wrote. When you trust Christ, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ Jesus, he says in chapter 3, verse 26, then you are sons of God through faith. Chapter 3, verse 29, and if you are Christ's through faith, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In other words, Galatians, wake up. You want to come under the law, but the only thing that's going to happen when you come under the law is slavery. Because the law is a descendant of Ishmael, not Isaac. Isaac is the child of promise. That's why Paul wrote in chapter 3, verse 7, Know then it is the, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 9, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 14, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might become or receive the promised spirit through faith. What this means then is this. These troublemakers, they claim that they are descended from Abraham 
and that their heritage is one of the reasons why they are justified, evidenced by circumcision. And what Paul is saying is you don't need circumcision in order to be justified, for Christ has done it all. As Tom Schreiner writes, he says, those who rely on the law and human effort to be right with God are not the children of the covenant, whereas those who rely on the free promise given in Christ Jesus are the true covenant people of God. So that's application number one, is if you trust in Christ, you are children of the promise. You are descended from Isaac. Your mama is Sarah. Your daddy is Abraham, which means you're in the family of Abraham, which means you're in the family of God. And it came by faith, not by works. You've got to remember that. Second application, verse 29. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that is Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that is Isaac, so also it is now. In other words, what Paul says is, you're experiencing a form of persecution in the church. It's hard. You don't know which way is what. Up, down, left, right. I don't, I don't know who to believe. I don't know what to think. And that's why Paul keeps coming back to the scriptures. Because that's your trust. That's what you can trust. It's true. But his application is simple. You shouldn't be surprised by persecution. Which we as good Americans, man, we just don't like that. Nah, I'm good. I'm not really into that whole persecution thing. And yet what Paul says to Timothy, his young protege and disciple, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about his persecutions in the region of Galatia. Look what Paul says. You, however, Timothy... You have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. And look at these three places, Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. The region of Galatia includes the cities of Iconium and Lystra. In other words, Paul's referencing his persecutions that he experienced in Galatia. And he's reminding Timothy of them. Somehow Timothy was aware of those things. He says, these persecutions which I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. What a beautiful verse. And then verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Oh man, for real? That stinks. While all people, by evil people, imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, here's his encouragement. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. Do you see what Paul does? Life is going to be hard, Galatians. But here's the thing. God has delivered me, and he will deliver you too. In the midst of your persecutions, in the midst of your suffering, my encouragement to you is this. Do not 
lose your grip on the gospel. It is true. And how you know it's true is because the scriptures teach us the gospel. And all of scripture is breathed out by God. It is able to make you wise for salvation. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, so that everyone would be fully equipped to do the will of God. Do not quit. And so his application is encouraging. Persecution is expected. That is, if you actually want to live for Jesus. If you want to live for yourself and have Jesus as your personal mascot, you won't have suffering and persecution. But if you want to live for Jesus because you've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. He loves you. He gave himself up for you. So you live by faith in the Son of God. That that kind of Galatians 2.20 kind of life is true, you should expect life to be hard. But God will provide. God will get you through it. His scriptures are sufficient. The gospel is true. God will be your ever-present help in time of need. He will not fail you. All right, application number three is in verse 30. But what does the scripture say? And he comes right back to scripture. He wants to make sure that the people understand. If you want to come under the law, okay, let's go read the law and see what the law has to say. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. In other words, in other words what Paul says is you've got to get that teaching out of the church. The slave woman and her son Ishmael, they don't get to partake in the inheritance of Abraham. The only ones who participate and partake of the inheritance of Abraham is Sarah and her son Isaac. And verse 28 says, you are descended from Isaac. In other words, we got to get this teaching out of the church because those who preach a false gospel, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's hard. That's hard talk. But only those who believe in Jesus, only those who trust Christ for salvation, only those who have put their trust and faith fully in the sufficiency of Christ, only they will receive the inheritance of the kingdom of God. And so, therefore, the church should remain pure to the gospel. So that's the last application. And the reality, what Paul is saying, is one is justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus has done all that is necessary to justify sinners before a holy God. How God has done that is in a positive way. He sent Jesus to obey the law completely, the very thing we couldn't do. And also in a negative way, in that Jesus took upon himself the punishment for our sins as our substitute, the very punishment we deserve. And so if you will trust that Jesus is enough, that Jesus has done everything necessary to grant you forgiveness, God will transfer his righteousness to you in exchange for your sinfulness being applied to him. And you can go free. In so doing, if you do that, you are placed in Christ. That's what the Bible calls you are united with Christ. And therefore, you are confident that you can stand before a holy God because you stand not on your own merits, but you stand on the merits of Christ. And the merits of Christ are perfect and complete. And therefore, at any time, you can plead Christ's blood and always be accepted by God the Father. 
I don't know about you, but that is some of the greatest encouragement and hope. Last little bit. Verse 31, and then chapter 5, verse 1. Paul is going to arrive at the great climax of his argument. Here's the crescendo. And the fact is, what Paul is saying is, Christ has set us free. There's no reason to go back to the law. There's no reason to abandon Christ or even to add anything to Christ. You see, those who put their faith in Christ are children of promise, and they are free. That's why he says in verse 31, So, in conclusion, having read the Scriptures, having interpreted them for you, and having applied them to your situation, therefore, so, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your justification, you are a child of the free woman whose name is Sarah, and therefore you are a descendant of Isaac. You are a child of the promise, and therefore you are a child of God. You are welcomed into the family of God by being included in the family of Abraham, not by circumcision, but by faith. And that is good news. The reality is you can't simultaneously be in Christ and also under the law. You can't say, well, I want a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of law. You can't do that. And the reason is this. Jesus has come to liberate us from the law. So you can't be both liberated from it and also enslaved to it. You are one or the other. That's why you read in Galatians 4, 4, and 5, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem us from under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we are either descended from Isaac or descended from Ishmael. You can't be descended from both. Faith, Isaac, Sarah, Abraham, God. I love how Paul does this. He does this by using Scripture. He doesn't just make stuff up. And I'll just give you a quick sampling in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 13. Remember, he's telling the people, you want to come under the law? Dude, you got to read the law because the law itself tells you you can't be justified by the law. You need to wake up. This is an irony. It's ironic. You want to be under the law, which will enslave you, in order to be free. What are you thinking? And so when you see Paul, he makes a statement about the truth of the gospel. For we all, or for all who rely on the works of the law, verse 10, are under a curse. And then he proves it by what? Quoting the law. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified by, uh, before God by the law. And then he, what does he do? He quotes the law. Verse 12. But the, the law is not of faith. And then he quotes the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then he quotes the law. And what Paul is showing is the reason why Jesus was sent is so that Jesus would do what the law could not do. Namely, the law cannot give us the power to obey what it commands, nor does the law give us life, nor does the law conform us into the image of Christ. Only Jesus sending the Spirit can do that. And therefore, the law is powerless. The law doesn't work in regards to justifying you. As Paul said, the law is good. But it's not powerful. It's good. It doesn't transform you, though. It's prophetic, but it doesn't give you life. So why in the world do you want to go back to the law? 
And then we get to chapter 5, verse 1, the first half. For freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Christ has come to redeem us from the curse of the law. He came to fulfill all righteousness according to the law. He came to give us the spirit so that we may be empowered to obey God. And he came that we might have life in his name so that we would be more conformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. Jesus came to do all of that. And that is how the Bible describes freedom. But what's a problem is in our culture today, freedom is so confusing. Here's what I mean. When I say the word freedom, we are Americans, America. And so we always know freedom in terms of like the Bill of Rights, freedom to assemble and the freedom of press, all this kind of stuff. And so we typically think of freedom in that kind of way. And it, that kind of freedom is actually infiltrated uh, into the church. I was, uh, <laughs> I was sent this message. Somebody told me this is the most like life-changing message they ever heard. And so they sent it to me. And they said, you got to watch this. And so I read the transcript of it, and I'm going, oh, oh no. Is this for real? i got to watch this. And so it was a, a message given by a well-known speaker and author. And they were uh, declaring this verse, for freedom Christ has set us free, in addition to a, a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where the spirit of the Lord there is freedom. And they were literally jumping up and down across the stage with a microphone declaring, you are free, freedom. And I've said this before at the church. It was like Mel Gibson in Braveheart. It was just like, what is going on here? And then I paid attention to what this person was saying. And so what I did is I slowed down the video and I actually just wrote it down for you all to get a flavor of how freedom is now being, I guess, uh, talked about in many churches. Here, here's a direct quote. You are free from the bondage of not losing the weight that you have been trying to lose. You are free from those condemning stares because you don't drive the car you've always wanted to drive. You are free from those thoughts that, you, that, that you're not good enough for marriage. You are free from the negativity that surrounds you. You are free to take the adventurous trips you've always dreamed of. Nothing can hold you back. You are not bound. You are free for freedom. Christ has set you free. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And people lost their minds in the crowd. Raising their hands, falling down, jumping up and down. People were clapping, applauding. And I'm watching this thing and I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness. You're telling me Jesus was crucified on a cross in order for you to travel? You're telling me that Jesus was bludgeoned, beaten, Hair ripped out, flesh torn, sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. In order for you to be successful in your weight loss program, you mean to tell me Jesus went through all the agonizing pain he went through in order for you to take a selfie in the car you've always wanted to drive? May it never be. This kind of freedom is too small. It's too shallow. It's temporary. It's insufficient. It's fleeting. It is fickle. It is unsatisfying. It does not glorify God. 
And therefore, when, when, when Paul writes, for freedom Christ has set you free, get it through your minds what Paul is offering here. Not some kind of weak freedom. That's weak. Give me the big freedom. If you just sample the New Testament, oh, you would find freedom that you've never even dreamed of having. Just sampling the New Testament, here's a, a little flavor of what you get. You get freedom from the curse of the law, freedom from the curse of Adam, freedom from spiritual death, freedom from the fear of physical death, freedom from the power of sin, freedom from the authority of Satan, freedom from the condemnation of God and the wrath of God, freedom to sonship, freedom to an inheritance that will never spoil, rot, or fade, forgiveness and clear conscience, shame is no more, guilt is no more, freedom, 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 give me that freedom. Sociologist Robert Ballah, he writes this. In essence, in America, freedom is the per perhaps the most resonant, deeply held American value. And what American mean, Americans mean by freedom is this. The freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, however you want, and with whomever you want. Basically, this kind of freedom means leave me alone. You're going to have a hard time finding that kind of freedom as a Christian. I'm free, God get out of my way. I'm free, I don't have to love my neighbor. I don't care about them. I'm not, I'm not bound to them. I love what Pastor Larry Adams has said. True biblical freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. True biblical freedom is the ability to do that which is good and pleasing to God. Amen. And so Paul concludes his little section by saying for freedom this kind of freedom that i've listed i've listed christ has come to set you free for that look big brothers and sisters look to an all-satisfying kind of freedom look to savor and treasure christ as your ultimate freedom and stand he says therefore stand firm in the gospel from external pressure stand firm against those things and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm against those internal pressures as well. You will be tempted to abandon Christ by adding something to Christ. But I would encourage you, don't give in. Resist. For if you resist the devil, he will flee. That's one of the freedoms. And so, brothers and sisters, as your pastor, as a shepherd of the sheep of this flock, I bid you stand firm in the gospel. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And when the Son has set you free, we are free indeed. So, Father, I pray that as we close our service and we get to sing about Christ as our solid rock and Christ as our firm foundation and Christ as the only one to whom we can look for satisfaction and for joy and for freedom. And as we sing in response to the gospel and as we sing in response to your love and your grace and your mercy by sending Jesus to rescue us from sin, I pray that you would bless us, you would be glorified, that we would be filled with that inexpressible and glorious joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. For his name we pray, amen.